All right, so last week, I, I kind of stepped into something I shouldn't have stepped into. I told everybody what the best Christmas movie was. This is the best Christmas movie ever. It's not debatable. I'll fight you if I have to, but this is the best Christmas movie ever. 1946 still makes me cry every single time that I've seen it since 1946. So <clears throat> I didn't start that that time, but yes, it has stood the test of time. But I guess what really happened last week was I stepped off into a controversy that I did not realize maybe that was a controversy. And this is what I found, the question of whether or not Die Hard was a actual Christmas movie or not. How many of you have ever seen Die Hard the movie? Have any of y'all seen it? I think I got, I, I started feeling under conviction because I was like, it's not a Christmas movie. It's not a Christmas movie. And then the, the picture right before, I searched for Die Hard and this is what I saw. And I thought, you know, Maybe it is a Christmas movie. He's wearing a hat. He's got, you know, ornaments. He's all that stuff. And then I realized I got interneted. Have y'all ever had that happen? That's actually what the picture is supposed to look like. But yes, it's, yeah, I got a little confused. I got interneted. And so I started thinking, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? And maybe we should try to settle it. You know, you guys are godly people. The spirit of God lives inside of you. He can lead you. Let's just talk it out. Let's just do a quick little poll. Who in here believes that Die Hard is actually a Christmas movie? Can I see your hands in here? There, okay, just a handful of you. All right, I got a military guy that's like, I don't even think it's a Christmas movie. All right, th that makes me feel better, okay? Uh, how many of you do not think that Die Hard is a Christmas movie? Can I see your hands? All right, it is not a Christmas movie. How many of you are like, Die Hard? <laughs> Any of y'all in here? Okay, a couple of y'all are like, yeah, I've never even heard of it. Okay, so I looked, and this is actually a movie that got a sequel, and then another sequel, then another sequel. There's four of them? Four. And one came out in 1990, one came out in 95, one came out in 2007. And I got to say, I'm impressed because like for a while he hasn't had hair, but Bruce Willis, like he's like spanned the whole thing. 1990, 95, 2007, it came out in 1988, I think the original movie, but check it out. There's not a single Christmas thing on, it's 40 stories of sheer adventure, not 40 stories of sheer Christmas adventure, right? And then he's got a gun. I don't think that you're supposed to have a gun during Christmas holiday stuff, especially not over the last couple of years. But yeah, so let's check this out. Um, unless this is the next uh, slide, unless you know about this movie, you know, the Red Rider BB gun. Any of y'all know what I'm talking about? Any of you guys? Okay, okay. You'll put your eye out, right? Shelly says to me the other day, what's that one movie? That one movie where he gets his, stu his tongue stuck on the frozen pole outside. Have you guys ever seen? <laughs> yes, yes. I love this kid over on the far right is an incredible actor. Look at him. That's my face. If I'm seeing that happen in real life, that is literally my face. That's some good acting for kids. So yes, the Christmas story, you'll put your eye out with the Red Rider BB gun, just FYI. How many of you guys love Christmas movies? Anyone in here? Okay, on the count of three, I want you to holler out your favorite Christmas movie so I can kind of get a little sense of what you're into, all right? And yes, if it's not good, I'm gonna judge you. That's just how I, I'm gonna do that. Y'all could pray for me because I'm probably not supposed to judge you as your pastor, but I'm going to a little bit. Make it good, all right? All right, on the count of three, ready? One, two, three. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha, 
you can't have three. I heard you. You were like, the Grinch and Santa Claus. And I heard Polar Express. I heard It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, bless you, whoever. I think I heard it from over in this area. Bless you. It's good. Um, Yeah. So anyway, I hope you guys are enjoying Christmas. I hope y'all are having a good time. Let's keep moving today as we talk a little bit about where we've been and what we're going to be studying. Let's go to this next slide. And as you take a look at this, you can see there's some very, very iconic images. And these things just stand the test of time. You think about Christmas, you start thinking about some of these things, the Christmas tree, the, the ornaments and the pine cones and all that stuff. You think about the candles, you might even think of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer up there. You think of Santa Claus, and yeah, Santa Claus is even wearing his mask, so I thought you guys would not have any panic if you saw that. And then right there in the very center, what do you see? You see the star, the star. The, the, the part of Christmas that is kind of a part of other parts of Christmas as well. How many of you, there's two different ways to top a Christmas tree. There's the angel and then there's the star. How many of you in here are team angel? Can I see your hands, your team angel? How many of you are team star on the top of your Christmas tree? Okay, so it looks like we've got a few more stars and some of you are like Christmas trees. <laughs> this means you're asleep and I'm really judging you for that. Um, here's what I've found. The Christmas star is a beautiful reminder of the light that Jesus brought into the world. Not only did he come to be the light, the thing that symbolized and the thing that attracted the wise men from a long distance was something that was basically an embodiment of light. It was a star that shone in a very, very powerful way. And in the process of all of our Christmas celebrations that have happened for the last 2,000 years, we haven't lost sight of the fact that the star means something and it brings light to us and it's something special even during Christmas time. And let's go to this next slide as you see. I talked about this last week, how light is kind of all woven through the Christmas celebrations that we have. I also have a little bit of housekeeping on this. I asked a guy from New York City what height that Christmas tree was And then he did the perfect thing to do in 2021. He said, I don't know. I think it's about 35 feet. And then I kept preaching and kept talking and he Googled it while he was in here. And he told me after the fact, he was like, hey, I told you it was 35 feet. It actually is between 70 and 100 feet. So it's a whole lot bigger than I realized. So this is the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree in New York City, somewhere between 70 and 100 feet. And talk about lights and lighting up the place. This is what you know we kind of see all around our world. As we go to this next slide, you'll kind of check it out. And see Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 and verse 6. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And then this book that we've been reading and encouraging you to read called Hidden Christmas reminds us that these four descriptions are all signs and symbols and words that are only used for God himself. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And he goes on and on talking about how Jesus will be these things to us as he steps into our world, as the light of the world steps down into darkness. Let's go to our next slide here. And we've talked a little bit about exactly what is the Christmas star. 
exactly what was it. And the Smithsonian Magazine kind of did a little bit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you, a really haphazard job. I'm not usually one to look at things online and go, yeah, they kind of missed the point and they really didn't do their homework because usually people who write for Smithsonian Magazine are smarter than me. I get that. I'm fine with that. Um, but I read a few things in this article that came out December 24th in 2015, and it was bad. It was really bad because here's what it says. While the Bible, I'm going to quote directly from this Smithsonian article online. It says, while the Bible says that the three magi were led to Jesus's birthplace by a star in the sky. Hold on just a second. Hold on just a second. Did you guys know that there is nothing in the Bible that says that there were three wise men? How many of you knew that? Did you not know? It's actually because there were three gifts. There were three gifts. And so because of that, we've always assumed that there was one gift for each wise man, but it could have been more. It had to have at least been two because it was wise men, not wise man. But we don't know for sure. And so this article actually kind of claims that it was, you know, three wise men from the Bible. The Bible never says one single time that there were three wise men. So that's kind of a, a sloppy thing here. And it goes on and says, um, the, the director of this planetarium tells a person named Vic Roy that the explanation doesn't quite jibe with the rest of the story. The Magi came from Persia, which meant they traveled 900 miles west. And I did a Google search. I don't know if they just didn't have Google back in 2015 or what, but I did a Google search. And the truth of the matter is, is that it's not 900 miles from Baghdad and Persia. It's actually a good deal less, a few hundred miles less than that. And then it goes on. And while they didn't see a star in the east, the Bible tells us in the verses that Eric read just a few moments ago that the wise men came in and they said, we've seen his star in the east. Now, stop for a second. That means a couple of things. It's very possible that it could mean one and not the other or whatever. If you said, I've seen his star in the east, that means you're looking to the east. Or we who are living in the east saw his star. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? There's two different things. And they made an assumption and they said that the Bible was inaccurate. And yet the truth of the matter is, is in this one paragraph, I've seen three things that I know to be inaccurate, that they're proclaiming to be truth and just assuming that the Bible is incorrect. The truth is, is I believe when they came into Herod's presence and said, where is this child that's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. What they could have said was, we saw this star while we were in the east and we've come to worship him. Does that make sense? You guys understand what I'm saying? And so I would just encourage you, if you do any kind of background and look a little deeper on the star, which is a really important part of the Christmas story and even in our Christmas celebrations, just make sure that you're looking at a website or, or kind of going in a little deeper that actually kind of honors what we know to be true about God's word. And that is, is that it has truth for us no matter what. So let's go to this next slide here. And this... What exactly was the Christmas star? The truth is, is we don't really know. We don't know exactly what it was because back in the ancient world, if they looked up into the sky and saw a bright body there, they called that a star. It was not the fact that it was per se a star, but if they saw a comet, they didn't say, I'm going to Google this and make sure Halley's comet isn't coming through. Like that wasn't a thing. 
So anything that was in the heavenly bodies that was not the sun or the moon, if it was a planet in the distance, they saw it and they believed it to be a star. It's the very same thing that we see. For most of us, we look up in the sky. We're like, oh, the sky is full of stars. We're not lying. The truth is, is that some of those things that you think are stars are actually planets. You guys know that, right? And so as you see those things, you're not telling an untruth. You're just simply making a generalization. And so when the Bible tells us that the wise men said, we saw his star in the east, they weren't exactly able to go and grab their telescope and say, let me take a look at this, or I'm going to go visit the planetarium and check it out. They can't do that. And so it could have been a lot of things that they would have termed as a star. It could have been a meteor or a comet like Halley's Comet or a supernova, which is an exploding star. I don't really think that that's possible. It could have been a planetary collection as a sign. And let me just kind of explain this real quick. Actually, I want to click to the next slide and then come back if you don't mind. Check this out. This is from 2020. And you can see here, it says the Christmas star will be the closest visible conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in 800 years. The conjunction of the planetary giants will look like one large star on the winter solstice, December 21st, 2020 in the southwest sky. And you can kind of see an artist's depiction of that. In other words, Jupiter and Saturn come so close in our visual path that they look like one single star kind of merging. You guys understand? So it's possible that the conjunction of the planets came together. And when the wise men saw the star, they were like, wow, check that out. There's a star that's brighter than anything that we normally see in this part of the sky. And so we understand that whatever it was about this Christmas star, they saw it and they said, that's not normal. And they, and they drove their camels, they drove their caravan, they got all of everyone together and they went to Jerusalem to seek what had made this star come to be. Now let's go back, if you don't mind, one slide there. What was it? It's a planetary collection or a conjunction of planets. That planetary collection could be that what it was was when it says, where is he that is born king of the Jews? How many of you ever heard of somebody being called a Leo? Uh, uh, their, their sign, their astrological sign is a Leo. The, the lion, the Leo, the lion of the tribe of Judah was going to be born and the Jupiter was maybe the king. And so you look at it and you're like, where is he that's been born king of the Jews? Maybe Jupiter went into the Leo constellation to help them to understand that. And so there's all different kinds of possibilities. And let's never forget it could have just been a supernatural phenomenon that God had a very special star announcing the birth of a very, very, very special baby, the one, as the Bible says, to all, uh, all of history has looked to. Let's go to our next two slides. Let's, next one. Next, there we go. And let's check this out. You might be thinking, well, Randy, why in the world are you talking about the book of Ezra whenever you're talking about the star and you're talking about the wise men? Most history tells us that these wise men, they came from Babylon more than likely or Persia, the Persian kingdom. Well, if you look closely at Ezra chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, a few years earlier, about four or five hundred years earlier before the birth of Christ, you can see that Ezra made that very same trip. 
And he tells us exactly how long that trip took. He says that he arrived in Jerusalem on the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. In other words, it was a four-month journey of approximately 650 to 700 miles. And he seems to say that that journey was better than he could have asked for. You guys see that in the, in the scriptures there? For the gracious hand of his God was on him. So as we see, they've been traveling for a while and they come into not the presence of Jesus first, but where do they come first? They come into the presence of King Herod. And this is where everybody in the house says, dun, dun, dun. If there was a negative, if there is a horrible person in the story of Jesus's birth, it's not just the, you know, not the innkeeper. I mean, he's like kind of on the naughty list, but he's not the villain. He's not the Grinch, right? But you look at King Herod and this guy was a horrible, horrible man. We're going to talk a little bit about who King Herod was. Let's go to our next slide. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 7 and verse 16, the Bible tells us some things here. And I want to just kind of share, actually, I'm going to read a little bit of the story that, that, that um, we have not yet read. I ask Eric to read the first part. I'm going to read the second part of the story. So they come in, they bow down, and they worship the king. And then in verse 12, it says, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, just in case you weren't listening, did you guys hear? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. They went into Herod's presence. Herod's like, I really would like for you to tell me where he's at so I can go and worship him just like you guys are going to do, right? Y'all want to worship him? So do I. So please just let me know and I'll go there too. But having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and he said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, that's rough, right? That, that's scary to think about your child being hunted by the most powerful man in your region. And the only thing that's there to keep him and you alive is the Spirit of God and the angelic messenger telling you, you got to leave and you got to leave now. Now, some people have speculated, especially because you look at, uh, at Mary and Joseph and they were not rich or wealthy. They didn't have much. But some people have speculated that maybe what happened was they had the money for this trip because of the wise men coming and giving the gifts. They had gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were expensive commodities that they were given. And maybe they used those things to support themselves as they fled and went to Egypt. And so he got up, he took the child, he took his mother during the night and they left for Egypt where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophets out of Egypt. I have called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted, I'm going to just stop, stop for just a second. Maybe you don't hear this very much. I don't like reading this passage of the Christmas story, to be honest with you, because it's just, it's hard to think about. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi or wise men, he was furious. 
He gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. And then that was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for, his children, for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And so as you see in this passage, as Jesus comes into the world, it's a hard thing to think about. But he came in and not everybody was excited. Not everybody was anxious for him. Very quickly, I want to go to this next slide here. And as you see this, something to learn. This comes from the, the, the uh, hidden Christmas that we've been talking about. He says, from what we know about the populations of villages such as Bethlehem at the time, that would have been about 20 to 30 children that were murdered trying to find just that one child. Such atrocities were so commonplace in Herod's reign, it didn't even merit another historical mention. In other words, Herod, that terrible individual, is a guy who does this kind of thing on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, you look a little deeper at Herod and you can see these things. Let's go to this next slide and you'll see how crazy was Herod. <laughs> he had his favorite wife killed as well as his firstborn son, Herod Antipater, uh, Antipater, excuse me. In other words, <clears throat> here's what happened. He loved this woman so much that he said, you know what, here's what we're gonna do. If I die before you do, I'm going to give orders to the, all the people that are left and they're gonna kill you as well, just to make sure that we're never separated in eternity. That's how much he loved her, right? And so it's weird, it's sick, it's twisted, but that's what he felt, but then later, he thought that she was scheming against him. And so because of that, he decided, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and have you murdered because I think you're trying to find my throne for your own or for your sons. He had that firstborn son and his favorite wife killed and murdered. He also killed other people in the distance from him, people that were a part of his court, people that were kind of known in the area, anyone who had any kind of pull with the people. He had them murdered to make sure that he alone was qualified and considered to be king. He had two other sons. He suspected them of plotting against him, and they were put to death with Rome's help. Their names were Alexander and Aristobulus. In other words, what happened with these two is he said, I'm not going to have them murdered. I'm going to put them on trial, and then they're going to be murdered with Rome's help. And so it came to the place where everybody who knew what was going on with Herod was so familiar with how weird he was that there was a Caesar who said, it's better to be his pig than it is to be his son. And what he meant by that, if you see here, as a Jew, he was not a person who ate meat or pork. And so it was safer to be his pig and better to be his pig than it was to be his son. If you go to this next slide, you can see he was doing a little play on words. And this is important as well. Actually, go two slides up if you don't mind. And then we'll come one more. There we go. His pig and son, almost the same exact words in Koine Greek. But I want us to look and see what we see 
and something that we can grasp and get a hold of for ourselves in all of this history. You're like, Randy, so much history, so much understanding about all this stuff that I've heard about, but I don't really understand why it matters to me. Let's go back to what Tim Keller said in his book. This is the quote that he said. Let's go back here. He says, if you come into a palace and ask where the king is, it's going to make the person sitting on the throne feel kind of frustrated. The text contains one of the great understatements of the Bible when it says Herod was disturbed. History tells that this man was unusually violent. And then it goes on in the next slide. And it says, even for the standards of his time, killed many members of his own court, his own family to ensure his absolute power when unchallenged. Here's where it matters to us. If you walk into the throne room and say, where is the king? The person that is sitting on the throne is like, you're looking at him, Jack. (laughs) I'm right here. That's a stupid question. I'm the guy in the robes. I'm the guy with the crown. I'm sitting on the throne. I've got the stick. You're looking at the king. He's right here. And they're like, no, 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 no. We want the real king, the one that we saw his star. And we want that king that was just born in your area. Do you see the problem? Do you see the issue They said this to the guy who killed his own flesh and blood so that he might not be a person who was a king and no longer was a king. He wanted that kingship and he wanted to hold on to it with everything that he had. And you may be saying, man, that's that's scary stuff. That's terrible. Herod's a bad guy. But before we throw stones at Herod, can I tell you? We're the same. We are the same. We are the same people who want to be on the throne of our own lives. And how dare you tell me that I am not the king? How dare you say this is what is right and this is what is wrong? In my life, I say. And yet what was really being said here, the wise men said, You're not the king, you're a king, but we want to worship the king, the king, if you'll allow me to say it that way. You guys understand the difference? And it's still the same today. Every time somebody walks in and says, you're not the king, we go, how dare you? You're looking at the king, man. That's me. And, you know, king or queen, but you understand what I'm saying We believe that we are rightfully in charge. And when Jesus was born in this world, it reminded us that we really are not the king. That this world needed a king and needed a savior. And we love it when we say, Jesus is the savior of the world. He's the king of the world. But here's what's really hard is when we say he is my savior and he is my king. He's the one who says what my life looks like because I am not fit to be a king. I'm not fit. I'm not qualified. I'm not capable. I am not the king. That's a hard thing for human beings to say. And part of what is hidden in Christmas is the reminder that we 
as much as we would like to be, don't get to sit on the throne of our own lives. If it was enough for us to be sitting on the throne in our own lives and be the one making all the decisions and we were capable of being king, he didn't have to come. He did not have to come, but he came so that those walking in darkness would see a great light. Those who thought they were capable of being king, when it all falls down and the kingdoms crumble, and they always do, when that happens, who can you turn to? You can turn to the king and realize you weren't ever anything but a king in the first place. Can I get an amen on that, right? Amen? And don't miss this. Don't miss this. This is so important for us to grasp and understand. Don't miss it. This star meant two different things for two different people, but they made their own choice. Herod and the wise men were given the same choice when Jesus entered the world. Herod chose warfare. The wise men chose what? Worship. And here is what I would say to you. If you don't like the fact that you are not the king, you can choose warfare, and I promise you, you will lose. You have probably already lost and tasted some defeat, but I also know that it's possible that maybe you're a person who has not yet tasted defeat. I'm here to tell you as a person who has lived a little longer, I promise that defeat will come and you can choose to warfare against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But I would encourage instead that you just simply do what the, those who were wise did. And those that are wise still do. They just simply come and declare, I am not the king. I'm just here to worship him. I'm here to put him on the throne in my life. I'm here to let him tell me what life is supposed to be and the path that he wants me to walk. Instead of trying to claim my own little petty kingdom, I'm here to instead worship and glorify the king. So here's the big idea that we share with you today. The big idea is there can only be one king in your life and you determine who it is or what it is. Now, I, I put these slides together and I, I, is that me? Is it me? Is it me? It's me. Is it, is it you? It's me. <laughs> okay, hold on. I don't know if it's just my batteries, but if that continues, uh, I, I might, need a, might need a rescue like happened a few weeks back. Um, if not, I'll try to be good. Um, there can only be one king in your life. You determine who it is or what it is. And here's what I mean. I started to put this slide together and I started to use the word decide, but I didn't like it. I didn't like the word decide. You can see how it would kind of fit and you decide who it is. But here's what I think. I think in our minds, what we do is we say, Jesus is the king in my life. I've decided, <laughs> I've decided, I've declared it. But I don't think the determined word is the same. I think decide and declare. We decide things and we declare things and we do all that stuff. But I think determined kind of makes me think of it in a different vein. Like a day in, day out, I determine today that he is the king. Do y'all hear it just a little different, determined versus decide? I think that was what I was shooting for was determine. 
not just simply decide. And so I tell you, you can be a who, it can be a what, but you are the one who determines who is actually the king in your life. Here's the thing, don't miss this. Our own personal history makes it abundantly clear that left to our own devices, we don't have the capacity to dispel the darkness of our own world, much less the world around us. We desperately needed a savior, that's why he came in the first place. So very quickly, how can you and I deal with these things and how can we make him king? How can we make him king in our own lives? Let's go to slide number 30, if you don't mind. Very quickly, we're gonna talk about how can we make him king. This is how you do it. You do whatever it takes to find him. He went in, those wise men went into the throne room and said, where is the one born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and we've come so that we might bow down and worship him. They did whatever it took to find him. It was not the easiest thing for them to do. They took a long trip and a long journey to get there, at least about five, six, seven hundred miles. And they did it at a time that was very difficult to travel. It was dangerous to travel, but they made sure that they found the king. Can I tell you, I don't know what journey you've been on. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what has happened in your past or what you're dealing with in your present. But I can promise you that if you will seek him, you will find him because his word says, you will seek me and find me if you seek me with all of your heart. So how do we make him king? First, we do anything it takes, whatever it takes, to make sure that we find him. The second way that we make him king is you put the king at the center. <laughs> that means that everything that is important to me is now tainted and you know, colored by the fact that it should always glorify God. This is really, really important for us and for all of us. We need to realize that the most important thing that touches my heart is not just my kids, it's not just my country, it's my Christ. <laughs> it is he who touches my heart in the deepest ways. He is the one who is the part of my heart, body, soul, mind, spirit. It is all of those things. And I love the Lord my God with all of the heart, mind, body, soul, spirit that he's given me. He is my everything. And if he's not, if there's never a tear that comes to your eye whenever you consider what Christ has done, I would just encourage you, man, look a little deeper and make sure that you haven't let something else sit on the throne as more important, more beautiful, more powerful, more meaningful and moving in your life than the Christ. And by the way, y'all see my family, right? I got three amazing girls and a mama who is the best in the world. No offense to the rest of y'all who are at least second place or less, right? I'm telling you, I've got so much to be grateful for. And those people, those women, those, those young women and that woman move me. But they don't sit here in my life. They are not capable. They are not enough. I love them with all of my heart, but they are not enough. And if they're not enough, I promise you, I'm sure not enough. He alone is the king. So how do you make him king? You put him at the center. You do whatever it takes to find him. But then thirdly, 
You let the king take control and you let him lead you. You stop trying to be the king's advisor. (laughs) You just say, just steer me in the right direction and that's where I'll go. Because here's the problem. For most of us, we're like, I'm going to let him be the king, but let's just pretend he's out of the country and unavailable for this decision because I know what he probably wants and I know what I want and they're not really getting together. So just for this once, I'll take the spot back. I'll take the decision back. You see, if you get to decide when he gets to decide, you've already made a decision. That's really profound. If you get to decide when he gets to decide, you've already made a decision, and it is not him that is on the throne. Amen? It's actually us. When we kind of, Lord, just scooch on over here. I, gotta, I got this one on my own. Well, that's not cool with the king. He will let it happen, but don't pretend that you have determined in your heart who the real king is because you've actually done a pretty good job of determining who that is, and it's not the one that you probably declare. Proverbs tells us in verse, chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, and this is a great passage of Scripture for you to memorize. This is one that I know from the King James Version. This is a little different, but I remember it from the King James Version. It's one of those that I actually learned. My Bible had a beautiful picture Uh, color picture, and it had this verse, so it just stuck in my head. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. That's the King James Version Bible that I had when I was growing up. It's basically the same. It could be he could make your path straight or another translation is he will direct your paths. That's the one that I remembered and the one that I memorized. It is a powerful thing. What is it telling us? tells us that our own intuition and our own decisions and our own reason are not God's every time. And our decision should be to give it to him each and every time. So very quickly, how do you apply this message? You apply this message in a couple of ways. You see the light for who he is. (laughs) That is the Lord himself. He is the one who brings light to your life. And you also share the light with the people who are walking in darkness. This is how you apply this message. And I have a big question that I want to ask you. And this is the big question. Have you determined that Jesus is the king of your life? Have you sought to find him? Have you sought to put him at the center? And have you let him take control? If the answer to any of these is no, then I would say you probably are not worshiping the king. You're probably worshiping a king. And the only one who ever brings hope, peace, and light to those who are walking in deep darkness is the one that we say, he alone is the king. And it's Jesus. Heavenly Father, be with us. Help us to grasp and understand how much we need you. Lord, you are the king. You are the light of the world. And because of this, we worship you and we give you control in our lives. Lord, we need you. We cannot do these things on our own. And so we look to you and ask you 
who work within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.